Welcome to episode 127. Today, we host the incomparable Dr. Jim Cummings about his new book called Rethinking Instruction for Multilingual Learners. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. When schools or districts ask me what they can do to redesign their instruction for MLs, I am rendered speechless by all the ways we can begin. Now I can simply hand them Dr. Jim Cummings' new book. It will provide for them the theoretical framework that will form the foundation of their school-wide, district-wide language policy. This is a replay-worthy episode. Now, on to today's podcast. I thought I was lucky years ago when I had Dr. Jim Cummings on the podcast when he agreed. But now I am doubly lucky again to host him back one more time to talk about his newest book, Rethinking the Education of Multilingual Learners. Dr. Jim Cummings, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Dan. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, you've been busy during the pandemic. You got to do something. (laughs) (laughs) You are always doing something for us in the field. So would you start with telling us about a story that has informed your practice? Um, I'm not sure if there's uh, one story that immediately comes to mind, but uh, I guess one um, uh, event that uh, I encountered very early on in, in my work has stayed with me, and uh, it's indicative of a lot of the um, uh, assumptions that have been made about multilingualism over the years. This was back in um, 1977, probably. Uh, I was um, a research associate uh, working in um, uh, Edmonton at the University of Alberta. Uh, I'd Finished my PhD in 1974, went back to Ireland for two years. Um, I then came back to Canada, looked around for a job for about six months and eventually found a halftime, very poorly paid position um, working uh, in a, on a research project in um, at the University of Alberta where I'd graduated from. And we had, uh, it was a center focused on special education issues. And uh, the uh, chair or the director of the center had uh, organized a, uh, a conference for uh, teachers and psychologists uh, uh, involved in special education in the two local school boards. And um, I got taught, I, he asked me to give a talk on language issues and bilingualism, uh, which I uh, did. And I got talking to some of the psychologists who were working in one of the school boards afterwards. And they um, expressed concern that they were getting a lot of uh, newcomers coming in, a lot of um, uh, students and families from Southern Europe, from Latin America, and 
uh, a lot of these kids were being referred for psychological assessment and they uh, were giving the Wechsler Intelligence Scale for Children as the core uh, assessment instrument. And they worried about uh, the fact that, you know, the verbal tests uh, were possibly culturally biased or they weren't sure to what extent they were um, appropriate to use with these children who were uh, being referred to them. And um, so basically I got the idea, well, they've got this wealth of data in their files with all of these uh, assessment, teacher referral forms and assessments. And uh, I suggested, let's take a look at, at what you've got. We can kind of anonymize everything and see what's going on here. And so that's what I, uh, uh, I did. They, were, uh, they agreed to that, the school boards agreed to it. And one of the things that came out of it was that there was a big uh, uh, difference between students' verbal um, uh, abilities, verbal cognitive abilities, and their nonverbal abilities. To the uh, when you've got a, a mean or an average of 100 and a standard deviation of 15, um, which is the normal standard score uh, curve, uh, you've got uh, the um, students on average, and these are more than 400 students that I was able to analyze. Uh, in the nonverbal or performance areas, they were kind of mid-90s, 93, 94, 95, um, and so a little bit below the mean, but that's not surprising. Uh, and then uh, in the verbal uh, areas, they were mid-70s, between like 75 to 80 on, on average. So there was a big gap there. And it was clear that some of the uh, psychologists were uh, referring or were basically saying, yes, this child has a learning disability. You know, here's what you should do. Um, and some of them also were making assumptions about the cause of the child's difficulties, uh, namely that the families were using their home language in the home. And this one child that I called Maria as a pseudonym um, was in grade one and the, uh, she uh, had the same kind of profile as um, many of the other uh, students. Um, and the psychologist in his or her remarks to the teacher, report back to the teacher, uh, said, uh, Maria is a child of low average uh, ability, blah, 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 you know, just re repeating the results of the tests. And um, uh, the problem, one of the problems is that her family speaks only Italian at home. And this problem is going to get even worse uh, because the, uh, her grandparents are, going to, are arriving shortly from Italy. And basically, there's going to be even more Italian spoken at home. And so try to encourage Maria to use English as much as possible, to uh, use English with her friends in the playground, et cetera. So, you know, this was the uh, attitude that was operating there where children's home languages were being pathologized and being um, proposed as a cause of their underachievement. And therefore what the teachers should do is insist on English in the classroom, tell parents that, you know, if they want the child to succeed, they need to start using English. Um, and uh, that, that attitude is still there. Uh, it's, it's changed a lot. It's, we've got better, but you still find that uh, happening uh, in um, uh, a lot of European countries, for example. And, um, and that, that, little, that, that nugget of a, of a psychological assessment was very eloquent in a kind of perverse way in highlighting just, okay, what are the well-intentioned attitudes operating here? And this, you know, this is still out there. And some of the uh, studies, the PISA studies, the Program for International Student Assessment that the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development has been doing over the last 20 years, 
in some of those reports, you see exactly the same kind of assumption being made. Uh, minority kids, immigrant background students, first and sec second generation students are not doing as well uh, as native born students, uh, partly because uh, they're using their home language in the home and try to get parents to use more English. Um, parents have got to realize that they've got to play a role in helping their child do better. And that means using the, the, the school language. So, you know, these attitudes are there and it's essentially, it's a classic case of blaming the victim. And those things were relevant. And the, the story that you shared was experienced in 1975, and yet you're right, it still happens. Like the, the fact that there are so many Marias out there and then her language is being uh, demonized and then her culture being demonized. I would say that there, is very, there are very few scholars out there who have a greater impact on my career than you, Dr. Cummings. Like I still remember when, you, when I read your, read your article and when you said, first language supports language, second language acquisition. And I was like, oh, no, I don't believe that. And then it just kept, and then when I started applying that and trying to see that, I was like, wow, it really does help. And I think even though it's been since 1975, we are still fighting this. We're still advocating for uh, first language uh, integration of schools and then recognition and validation it's just so sad that it's still happening. Yeah, it's this was um, uh, the time around the time when the notion of additive bilingualism uh, came into play. This was a, a notion first proposed by uh, Wallace Lambert, who is a psychologist at the at McGill University in um, uh, in Montreal, and um, he contrasted additive versus subtractive bilingualism. And his point was that uh, a lot of uh, students from minority backgrounds are in subtractive um, uh, contexts where their first language is being subtracted as they're adding the, the second language. And a lot of these kids end up after six years of schooling um, with far less fluency in their home language than they had when they entered school. And Lambert said, this is problematic. There's no basis for this. Bilingualism is not a negative force in children's development. It's a positive force. We should be promoting the, the co-development of both languages. And this is what he called additive bilingualism. And so it was a challenge uh, to the, um, I guess, the power relations operating in many societies at that time. So that notion of additive bilingualism, bilingualism has been a key element in terms of um, promoting a change of mindset within schools in relation to students who are learning the school language. Well, you have just talked about the positive force of uh, additive bilingualism. Well, you have been a force in our field and uh, for the past 40 years and currently you've just written a new book. So tell us about the seed of that book. Well, the, um, the book is called uh, Rethinking the Education of Multilingual Learners. Uh, a critical analysis of theoretical concepts. So that subtitle is enough to put most readers off, you know, who, who needs theoretical concepts. Uh, and it kind of implies that, okay, this is not going to be a practical book. But the point that I'm trying to make uh, in the book is that theory is directly related to practice. And practice generates theories, uh, and then theory feeds back into practice. So it's a cyclical process. And what I just talked about in terms of the... Um, experience of uh, children like Maria, whose first language uh, is 
essentially uh, squashed within the school context uh, by well-intentioned teachers. That's a theoretical notion. The, the, the psychologists or the teachers or the policymakers think that, well, if only these children did not uh, speak their home language, then uh, their problems in learning English would be far less. And you know, so the, if you want to break that down into theoretical notions, there's uh, elements of an interference um, hypothesis in there. The first language interferes with the learning of the second language. There's elements of a, an assumption of time on task. You know, if, if children are spending part of their interactive time, their learning time, using their first language with their parents, or watching first language television or reading first language books, that's taking time away from, um, from time that they're going to be spelling, spending on the school language. And so that's a theoretical uh, assumption. And so theoretical concepts are uh, infused within all practice. And often these theoretical concepts are uh, assumptions, they're um, unchallenged. Uh, and what I've tried to do in the book is look at what the research is actually saying. And I've, I've tried to take the opportunity to um, uh, kind of wrap up and synthesize work that I've been doing over the past 40 years in terms of proposing a variety of theoretical concepts like the notion that there's a common underlying proficiency in the two languages, there's an overlap uh, or permeability across languages at a deeper level, even though we can clearly distinguish languages um, uh, at a you know interactive level or in terms of their written forms. In terms of our processing, uh, there's a lot of positive interdependence across languages. Uh, and the research strongly supports that in terms of correlations between languages, in terms of looking at what happens when we promote students' home language through bilingual programs rather than try to get rid of it. All of the, the research uh, supports that notion and that directly contradicts the subtractive uh, idea that students' first language has got to be got out of the picture. Um, and so theoretical concepts are key to understanding what happens in practice. And so that's that's basically where the, the book is coming from. I've, I've taken the opportunity to try and pull together the work I've done over the past 40 years, some of the theoretical ideas I've um, uh, proposed and the research that uh, is related to that. Um, and um, I've also tried to address some misconceptions about what I've been saying and, and crit criticisms of what I've been saying. And so the first part of the book is kind of a personal narrative in terms of how these ideas came about, What's the research um, saying in relation to them? What have been some of the objections to them? How do we answer some of those objections? And, and it, it kind of pulls together that in terms of the work I've been doing recently in terms of looking at what do educators need to know in order to provide um, uh, optimal learning conditions for students who are uh, multilingual, who are learning the school language. And there's a framework in the book that we'll probably talk about later that uh, addresses um, that. But then the second part is looking at some of the controversies in the field. And one of those controversies uh, concerns the nature of academic language. Is academic language a, um, uh, a legitimate concept uh, or is it not? And I made, as, as you know, I made a distinction between basic interpersonal communicative skills and cognitive academic language proficiency very early on in, in the late 70s. Um, and you know, BICS and CALP in terms of acronyms, I've tended to use conversational fluency versus academic language proficiency um, uh, in more recent years. 
But so that that notion of academic language has been controversial. It's been argued for many, many years since the early 80s that this is basically proposing a deficit view of uh, the language of minoritized students. Uh, and so I try to answer those critiques because those critiques have uh, maintained themselves over 40 years. Um, another controversial uh, issue has been the, the notion of um, uh, teaching uh, for transfer. Uh, if we, is that a, a legitimate thing that we should be, teachers should be trying to enable students to transfer their knowledge that they've gotten their first language, their second language, and use their entire uh, linguistic and cognitive repertoire it to, um, uh, to succeed in school. And that's basically what the uh, common underlying proficiency is saying. But uh, in recent years, it's been uh, suggested that, well, the notion of teaching for transfer implies two different languages that we've got, you know, L1 is different from L2, so languages are discrete. And that notion of having separate languages uh, is very close to the notion of arguing that uh, we need to teach the standard or standardized form of the second language uh, to students. And we also need to kind of uh, get rid of the non-standard variety of the first language that the student is uh, speaking. So that the argument has been that this notion of teaching for transfer or uh, common underlying proficiency and, and notions of additive bilingualism, because they acknowledge the legitimacy of the construct of, of a language, uh, is essentially proposing a deficit uh, view of children's languages. And so I, I try to uh, analyze those arguments, their theoretical arguments, but they have a lot of implications for practice. Um, and so, and then I, I get into the whole notion of translanguaging, uh, which has been a buzzword over the last decade or more, and, um, and look at, okay, what exactly is translanguaging? Uh, what are different, um, uh, uh, I guess, conceptions of, pedagogical translanguaging. And so I analyze those issues too. So the second part is more uh, analytic in terms of looking at contemporary controversies in the field. And some, a lot of those controversies are connected to work I've done in the uh, initial 40 years of, of, um, of research that I've done. So there's two different aspects. One is a, a personal account of how these ideas came about. Uh, I look at some of the criticisms that have been made and then looking at the um, uh, contempor more contemporary issues surrounding the legitimacy of, of theoretical notions like academic language, uh, teaching for transfer, linguistic interdependence, um, and uh, additive bilingualism. So that's, um, in a nutshell, what the book is, is all about. So there's 400 pages of, uh, of that kind of analysis in the book. Well, I'm excited to read those 400 pages because you let you help us look back and step back and to look at your 40 years of research in the field right and then with this book you help us look at hey what's your theory and theory is connected to practice theory shapes practice and then in your book you talk about what are the criticisms and then how you respond to that and i think this is like your this is your book where you get to respond would you talk more about that the conflict of or the contradiction of social language um, and how just the concept of bics and calps now some people are criticizing that because they're talking about oh this devalues students social language or language spoken at home yeah it's uh, you know th th that argument has been made uh, a lot and, and certainly that is not what the distinction is is getting at again 
the theoretical notions come from ob observations of practice. Uh, the, that's, those are the data. And I, I try to explain in the book where that distinction came from. It, it came from that study of more than 400 psychological assessments and teacher referral forms. And the, what the common refrain that was coming from the teachers was something like, you know, Jose arrived two years ago from uh, Latin America. He's made excellent progress in learning English. You know, speaks it fluently and seems to understand, um, you know, uh, what's being uh, said to him. But I'm really concerned that he has some kind of reading disability or learning disability because his, his academic work is so far behind uh, other students. And so that uh, perception that there is a difference between the child's facility in picking up English or whatever the school language might be, uh, and uh, the fact that his or her academic language uh, is not, in other words, academic language reading and writing uh, is um, uh, lagging behind. And that's a typical pattern that you often find in students who have genuine learning difficulties. And so the notion of social language versus academic language came from that um, uh, observation that was coming up time and time again. And the failure to distinguish between those two was generating deficits on the part of, of students because the uh, psychologists would give the Wexford scales, the WISC-R at the time, the revised version of the WISC intelligence test for children or the Wexford intelligence test for children. And they would validate what the teacher was suspecting that yes, this child is doing very well in nonverbal aspects close to or exceeding the uh, the mean, uh, but his or her verbal abilities are very much below the mean. So this is a classic um, pattern that uh, children who get designated as having a learning disability um, tend to manifest. And um, so some of these kids were being labeled as learning disabled, but in actual fact, many of them, probably most of them, were just going through the normal process of catching up academically. And uh, when I uh, moved to Toronto in 1978, uh, I was able to reanalyze data from the Toronto board that showed that when we looked at immigrant background students who were learning the school language, uh, they were taking at least five years to catch up academically. It was between five and seven years before they got within a half standard deviation of the mean. And so suddenly the penny dropped in terms of what was happening here. Children uh, are, take a lot longer to catch up academically than they do to catch up in terms of social language. Um, and the reasons for that are twofold. One, academic language is pretty complex. You're talking about use of things like passive voice. You're talking about nominalizations uh, where we make a, an abstract noun out of a verb. You're talking about low frequency vocabulary that we virtually never find in everyday conversation. You find that, uh, that language, those syntactic structures, that vocabulary in written text and in classrooms. And so that's one reason why it's taking a little bit longer. But also the most obvious one is that students are, uh, who are learning the school language are catching up to a moving target. Every year, native speakers of the school language are expanding their vocabulary knowledge, they're expanding their reading skills, they're expanding their writing skills, they're expanding their knowledge of the world through the uh, subject matter that they're learning. And so immigrant background students who are learning the school language have to run faster because they're catching up to a moving target. And so no wonder it takes them at least five years, typically. And then that figure of five years is um, probably conservative. 
studies carried out in, in uh, Israel uh, by Alana Shahamian and colleagues suggested that immigrant background students in, in Israel take a lot longer than that to catch up academically. So um, we're looking at well-established data and that basically says, look, there are real consequences in terms of distinguishing between the challenges uh, of acquiring and, and developing expertise in the language that is typically used in school and the kind of fluency that children uh, can display in social contexts um, where they're using high frequency vocabulary and there's a lot of nonverbal or um, what linguists would call paralinguistic cues to the meaning, facial expressions, eye contact, uh, the immediate situation, et cetera. So that's where that distinction came from. And when you look at the, the research data, there's all kinds of um, documented differences between the language that comes up in school and the language that we use in social uh, contexts. And, you know, this has been demonstrated for years and years. The work of Douglas Biber, you know, a very um, a well-respected linguist in, in the United States has shown uh, in terms of massive analyses of, of linguistic uh, corpora uh, that, you know, there's a difference between the language that we use in face-to-face -face situations as opposed to the language that we use when we're uh, reading a lecture or you know, writing a book or uh, whatever, reading newspapers. And so this is not something that is um, intrinsically related to any um, uh, conception of minority students' language. It's basically talking about there is a difference in the relative frequency, and I'll emphasize that the relative frequency with which certain kinds of vocabulary certain kinds of discourse structures, certain kinds of grammatical structures are used in the context of schooling and literacy as compared to the relative frequency with which the, these um, uh, aspects of language are used in everyday social situations. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, when you talked about Bix is not racist, it's actually just a process. And actually when we understand that students process first through social language by developing their social language and then there's also a difference between academic language this helps us prevent sending students or labeling students as uh, students who need cognitive uh, cognitive support so we're not labeling them as special education kids right so this i think your bics and calps really help us uh, remove or help us prevent us from labeling them in a way that it's not true. So that has been really helpful. Yeah. It, it also, uh, I think, uh, highlights a lot of things that we should be doing in school. If we want to accelerate students' uh, acquisition of academic language, then one of the things that we need to do is reinforce their awareness of how this language works. Um, uh, and, and that means that this has got to be done not just by the English as a second language teacher or the language specialist, but by all teachers across the curriculum. When you're teaching science, you're teaching the language of science. When you're teaching math, you've got all kinds of opportunities to draw students' attention to these um, nominalized words like multiplication, subtraction, uh, the, the patterns that exist there. And uh, one of the characteristics of academic language and the language of literacy in English is that uh, it draws much more from Latin and Greek sources. That is the case for social language, uh, which draws much more from Anglo-Saxon uh, sources. And this goes back to the history of the English language, where the language in place in what's now England, um, between roughly the fifth century and the 11th century, was a, a Northern European uh, language. It was the language of the Angles and Saxons, they were the tribes that settled there. 
And so in the when you look at um, the everyday language that we use, there's all kinds of cognates between English and languages like Dutch or German or Swedish. Um, but when you look at the academic language, uh, you've got all kinds of cognates with Romance languages because they're all essentially dialects uh, of Latin, Latin and Greek. And so um, that's why a word like multiplication, you'll find very similar words in Romanian, in, in, um, in Italian and Spanish and French. So, because that's where they're coming from. So to say that this distinction between the kind of language that's typically used in social contexts and uh, the kind of language that's used in, in text and in, in classrooms is spurious. Um, if, if you're gonna make that argument, then you've got to address the data. And not, none of the people who have made that argument uh, have looked at the data. Uh, and I, that is irresponsible from my point of view. Well, the inner historian just came out of you. I love that little trip that you took us to understand Anglo-Saxon English. And then there's also the Latin side or the Romance languages. So thank you for that. Well, I, I had six years of Latin inflicted on me as a child in Ireland and four years of classical Greek. So I figure I've got to use some of that uh, uh, punishment uh, at some point. Well, it's not a punishment when you say it the way you do. So thank you for that. <laughs> Let's talk about the another chapter. Uh, so we just talked about the contradictions and you t you helped us understand Bix and Kalps. Let's talk about link chapter three, which is about linguistic independence, linguistic interdependence. Okay, well, you know, this came about by looking at uh, what seemed like a contradiction uh, in the uh, in the uh, data. Um, you had a situation where in Canada at that stage, uh, French immersion programs were spreading across the, the country. They'd been started uh, in um, the mid-60s near Montreal by Wallace Lambert and, and colleagues, uh, or at least uh, they weren't started by Wallace Lambert, but Wallace Lambert and Richard Tucker were the people who evaluated the initial program. And uh, this program seemed to be working very well. So English students from English home backgrounds who were immersed for in kindergarten and grade one in a total French environment. And then English was introduced, their home language was introduced in grade two. And then by grade four, it was about 50-50. They seemed to be doing really well. They, they were doing far better in French than when French was just being taught as a subject. And also their English skills didn't seem to suffer. By about grade three, they were performing at exactly the same level in English reading and writing as uh, students who had all their instruction uh, through, uh, through English. So here was a situation where for children from majority backgrounds who were in an additive bilingual situation. The first language was not being um, neglected, but it was uh, being strongly reinforced in the school, but after a couple of years, they were doing well. Whereas children from linguistic minority backgrounds um, who were immersed in an English speaking school context or whatever the language might've been in, in different countries, um, uh, they were, seemed to be doing really poorly. Uh, students from Spanish-speaking backgrounds in the United States uh, were performing much more poorly than uh, students um, uh, from uh, the majority language background. And so, and, and that was one of the reasons why bilingualism was getting a bad reputation. And that, okay, bilingualism is a cause of these children's um, uh, problems. But what Lambert and Tucker were able to demonstrate is that under the right conditions, when both languages continue to develop, 
bilingualism can have positive impacts on children's development. So I was trying to figure out, okay, what's going on here in terms of um, why does, why is, how do we explain the fact that there's no relationship between time spent through a language and students' achievement in that language when we're talking about the majority language? So how is it that students in French immersion programs can spend, you know, 50% or two thirds less time um, through English and yet not suffer at all in that? What's going on here? Well, there's got to be some kind of transfer going on across language. What they're learning in French is impacting their English. So why isn't that happening with students from minority backgrounds? Well, their first language is being suppressed. They're being punished for speaking their first language. Their parents are being told not to use that language. Um, and so their first language is not developing uh, to a literate level. And so there's less to transfer. And so they're not getting the support that they need uh, in terms of their um, learning of English. Often, at least certainly at that stage, that was typical that, that they weren't getting that kind of support. And the first language is also not being supported. And so there isn't that that transfer process is not taking place because the first language is being stigmatized and uh, erased from the school. There's not much transfer from English to the first language. And parents are being told that, you know, you don't, uh, if you want your child to succeed, then use English. Uh, and so these um, realities, trying to resolve that contradiction, obviously there are so sociopolitical aspects uh, uh, connected to this also. It's, uh, we're talking about coercive power relations operating in minoritized um, communities. Uh, but there's also, in order to explain the data, you need to posit uh, some kind of commonality or some kind of some space in our heads where the languages infuse each other, where the languages connect. And so that leads to uh, a, a pedagogical strategy of teaching for transfer. And even in a context that's monolingual in the school language, where we have maybe a mini United Nations in, a, in our, our classrooms, which is typical of as you know, of uh, many large cities in North America and Europe, um, in Toronto and Vancouver, for example, more than 50% of the kids come from non-English speaking backgrounds. In that context, um, uh, teachers need to realize that the first language is not irrelevant. It's not a problem. It's a part of the solution. And we need to um, enable students to use their entire multilingual repertoire in acquiring the home language. And the more their parents promote their first language, at home, the more they read to them, the more they tell stories, and the more they expand their ability to do different things with their language, the more of a foundation is developed for that language to transfer to English. And so we need to promote two-way transfer. And the so this has direct pedagogical consequences. And the work that I've been doing with colleagues over the last 20, 25 years has been looking at how we can bring students' home languages into the classroom even when the teacher doesn't speak these languages, even when there may be 10 languages, 15 languages in any uh, particular classroom, that doesn't mean that we don't uh, see that language as a resource. That doesn't mean that we ignore it. And teachers have come up with all kinds of um, amazing and inspirational strategies uh, for, develop, for treating students' multilingualism as an asset, for working with parents and communities to promote those languages and to enable students to use their first language for literacy purposes in addition to English. And this was happening long before the notion of translanguaging um, uh, came into the common discourse. So, you know, this kind of pedagogy, translanguaging pedagogy, 
doesn't depend on the theoretical concept of translanguaging. It was happening long before. Um, and so I think translanguaging is a useful term to, to talk about what's going on here. And I think it's, uh, I've used the term, I think it's, uh, it's an important uh, term to, um, uh, uh, to be aware of. And it's acted as a catalyst for increasing discussion of uh, how we can build on students' home languages and, and implement multilingual pedagogies in our schools. And, but that doesn't mean uh, that languages don't exist. That doesn't mean that um, uh, the pedagogy is dependent on the theory. It's um, the theory has come from the pedagogy. So the, one of the themes that I try to emphasize in the book is teachers as knowledge generators. Like teachers are not just the recipients of knowledge produced by researchers. Um, the, they are co-investigators, like in the work that colleagues of, uh, of mine and I've been doing, and, and certainly the work, a lot of the work that Ophelia Garcia and colleagues have done in, uh, in the United States, there's very much a, an equal relationship between uh, teachers and researchers in the generation of, of knowledge. So, and you know, that's a, that's a whole other way of looking at research and, um, the, and what we're doing as researchers and what our role is. I think when you were, as you were talking, I was thinking, oh my goodness, how ironic is that we want students to develop their L2 and yet we hinder their L1, but yet it's the L1 that actually forms the foundation and the springboard for L2 to grow. And so you've really helped us understand that with the concept of interdependence. Okay, I, I was going to just move to like, what is it, when you bring all of this together, what does it look like in terms of framework? Um, like what sort of model of the world, uh, of the instructional world uh, should school leaders, uh, teachers have when we're talking about a multilingual, multicultural uh, school population and, and broader community? And so the, the ideas that we've been talking about all come together in, in chapter six of, of the book. I try to pull all of this together, where when we look at uh, the causes of underachievement generally, um, the first question we should be asking, which interestingly has not been asked to any great extent, is who are the students, what, which are the groups that experience disproportionate underachievement? And when we look at the big picture, there's obviously variation, but when we look at the big picture, there's a, a lot of data showing that students from immigrant backgrounds uh, tend to underachieve compared to their native-born uh, peers. Uh, the OECD studies, uh, the PISA studies that they've been churning out uh, over the last 20 years show that very clearly, that even though there are some countries where immigrant background students are doing at least as well as um, uh, native-born students, uh, in most countries, there's a gap there in terms of reading skills um, and uh, other skills. Um, but so one, one group are linguistically diverse students who are learning the school language. But then there's the underachievement associated with social disadvantage or socioeconomic status. We know that students from the dominant group, the majority group, say English speakers in the UK and Canada, Australia, United States, Students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds uh, who are gr often growing up in poverty, whose parents may not be highly educated themselves, uh, they underachieve. Um, and then the third group are students from 
what I call marginalized uh, background students whose communities have been on the receiving end of what I call coercive relations of power uh, over generations. Um, African-American students, uh, Roma students in, uh, in European contexts, uh, 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 Latinx students in, in the United States. There's, all, there's a well-documented pattern of um, underachievement among these, these groups and stereotypes operating in the wider society, low teacher expectations, racism, all of those things play into uh, that. And the students who are experiencing the most profound underachievement are students who fall into all three of those categories. Um, and so, but when we look at the typical uh, school response to uh, students um, who are learning the school language, we tend to focus only on the language issue, on providing support for them to acquire the, the dominant school language. And so we provide an ESL teacher, English as a second language teacher, um, and that's supposed to solve the problem. The mainstream structure of the schooling stays intact. Um, and um, if students are coming from highly educated backgrounds and parents are professionals and uh, many students will, uh, catch up academically um, uh, on, with that kind of um, linguistic support. But when that's not the case, we've got to ask, well, what kinds of evidence-based uh, interventions or resp responses are operating to address all three of these issues? So in terms of providing linguistic support, we need to scaffold uh, students' understanding of instruction, scaffold their production of, of language, and this, this is sort of the ESL toolkit of um, you know, using visuals, et cetera, that you are probably one of the world's leading experts in. And, um, at the, and so the scaffolding is one key element. But secondly, if we take account of um, the nature of academic language, uh, this is challenging for all students to achieve. So in order to help students catch up, we need to take every opportunity to draw students' attention to it, to build up linguistic awareness, and to reinforce academic language across the curriculum. And then thirdly, we know that students' home language is a resource for learning. It's an asset uh, rather than uh, a problem. And so we need to uh, look at the inspirational pedagogies that have been uh, highlighted over the past 20 years where teachers have managed to use students' home language and mobilize their knowledge of their home language as a stepping stone to English. Now, not just as a stepping stone to English, but as a as a stepping stone to multilingualism. So those are three broad sets of entry points into looking at what kind of linguistic support we provide. But that's not enough, because if we look at what we can do we, uh, to, in relation to socioeconomic status, we've got to address those issues too. And there's not a lot that most teachers can do in relation to many of the kind of the conduits uh, for uh, underachievement uh, that are associated with um, uh, living in poverty or growing up in poverty. Um, but for example, teachers and schools can't do much about overcrowding in, in homes. Um, they can't do much about um, uh, oh, concentration of communities in neighborhoods, which means that you have schools that are 99% students from low socioeconomic status, immigrant backgrounds. That's, those are things outside of the scope of the school. But one of the things that schools can do and haven't been doing nearly enough of in many cases, is focus in on one of the effects of poverty. Um, if parents are growing up 
uh, if, if parents are struggling to put food on the table, they probably don't have enough money to buy books, uh, to buy iPads, to buy fancy mobile phones, uh, etc. Um, and parents may be working long hours to survive. They don't have that much time sometimes to spend directly with their children. Um, and uh, there'll be a variety of things there. But one of the things that has come out from the research, from the OECD research, as well as the work of Steve Krashen and, and many other people, is that one of the primary determinants of students' development of reading comprehension and literacy skills generally is the extent to which they become actively engaged with literacy. And the work of Nell Duke and, and others has shown that students from socially disadvantaged backgrounds have much less access to print in their homes, in their neighborhoods, and often in the schools that they attend than students from more advantaged backgrounds. And so when we put those two things together, what it means is that uh, if, we, if we want to address some of the effects of socioeconomic status, we've got to immerse students in a print-rich environment from the day they walk into a preschool or the day they walk into a kindergarten. And if we're not doing that, we're not going to uh, enable students to catch up academically because where you find academic language is in classrooms and in printed text. Um, there's a really interesting study uh, that was done in New Zealand uh, where they looked at preschool environments um, and they, they observed uh, you know, a variety of preschools and then they followed the students who were in those preschool environments through until the age of 16. And one of the things that they found uh, in, when they identified aspects of the preschool environment that were related to school success over time, uh, they found a variety of things related to the quality of interaction going on between teachers and, and students. But one of the, the things that they found that was uh, strongly related was the extent to which there was what they call literacy saturation happening in the, in the preschool environment. In preschool environments where students were exposed to books, where teachers were um, uh, reading books to children, where they're dramatizing stories, um, those students were doing much better academically at age 14 and age 16 than students who were in preschool environments that didn't have that literacy saturation. So that's something that has got to be part of the equation. And then when we move to the third group, students from marginalized uh, communities um, who have been subject to racism, subject to uh, negative stereotypes, whose varieties the home language have sometimes been um, uh, stigmatized, even in bilingual programs. Um, all of that adds up to a pattern of identity devaluation. So if that is a strong factor in promoting underachievement, then what schools have got to do is ask, how can we affirm students' identities uh, in a context where in the broader society, their communities uh, are being devalued? The first step in doing that is connect instruction to students' uh, lives and experience. We validate students' languages. We validate their culture in the context of teaching. Uh, we validate the varieties of language that they bring into the school. Um, uh, we decolonize instruction. If we're talking about indigenous uh, communities, if we're talking about communities like, for example, African-American and Latinx communities in the United States uh, that have had the status of what uh, has been called internal colonies, um, then we've got to decolonize that. We've got to uh, just challenge those coercive power relations. And so identity affirmation becomes a, a key element in talking about what we as a school community can do to push back on um, on underachievement. And this, this may sound you know, fairly 
commonplace. But what we're asking teachers to do is to challenge racism in the broader society, challenge, actively challenge patterns of identity devaluation. And, um, and if, if school leaders are not clear in terms of what this involves, uh, then there isn't, that message is not going to get passed down to, to teachers. And so when we look at the teachers that I've worked with and lots of other people have worked with who have been bringing students' languages into the classroom, who've been showing enormous creativity in enabling students to value their home language and use it as a, as a, a tool for learning, they are challenging the discourse in the wider society that says, you're going to do much better if you forget about that language because that's a cause of, of underachievement or that's promoting lack of integration. Um, and so, you know, when, when we're bringing, when we're promoting multilingualism in school, we're challenging those power relations. And so basically this is sort of a, a starting point for the development of school-based language policies. When we ask, when schools ask, what can we do uh, to help our students succeed? We've got to focus on certainly providing support for learning the school language, that's important. And there are clear ways of doing that. But we also need to promote active engagement with literacy uh, from the earliest stages. Um, the OECD research is really interesting here because it, it suggests, or it, it reported that there's about a one third overlap between the negative effects of social disadvantage, low socioeconomic status, and the positive effects of literacy engagement or reading engagement. What this implies is that schools could push back about one third of the negative effects of social disadvantage if we could get students actively engaged with reading from a very early stage. And I keep on repeating uh, that message and it's a hard message to get through, especially in, especially in the context of debates that are continuing to go on in the United States and elsewhere about the need to focus on intensive phonics in the early stages. Uh, I've got no problems with teaching phonics or using phonics. It's a tool for decoding, but reading comprehension is going to depend on the extent to which kids are actively engaged with literacy. And that means books. And then teachers have got to be agents of uh, challenging uh, racism and discrimination generally in the wider society. Um, and so we've got to do all three of them. And in developing school-based language policies, we've got to talk about all three of these uh, sets of issues. So the framework that I tried to develop in, in chapter six of the book basically tries to pull a lot of these things together and say, here's a starting point for discussion in schools. It's not prescriptive uh, in the sense that this is, you know, this is not going to look the same in, in different schools because different schools are in different contexts. But these are things we need to talk about in developing our school-based our school policies. I still remember when you introduced this framework about two years ago when I, when I interviewed you for the podcast, I was so blown away with this concept because you're right, you're saying language specialists are really great at scaffolding learning for students and scaffolding content language, but it's not enough. We have to think about literacy development, which you talked about. And then the last part you talked about is that's not enough as well. You can't just scaffold. You can't just develop literacy skills. You have to have students, uh, you have to include culturally responsive, culturally sustaining pedagogies. And that was like, that really put it together because when I now share with teachers, I always share that graphic where the, I created from your podcast. Here are the three frame. Here's the framework. Here are the three groups of students. Really, your students can really all fall into three. All, all the 
into these three categories. So therefore, we really should be doing all these three things. All these three things. All of these three things. Scaffolding content, scaffolding language, developing literacy, and also integrating students' cultures and experiences. Yeah, yeah it's when, when you look at, at what we're talking about uh, here, it's interesting to kind of step back into the academic world and realize that if we take those three categories, students, students from linguistically diverse backgrounds, uh, students from uh, socially disadvantaged backgrounds, and students from racialized or marginalized uh, uh, communities, there are three distinct sets of uh, researchers who focus in on these. You know, there's some people who bridge maybe two um, of, of these categories, but basically when we talk about linguistic support uh, and helping students develop their multilingualism, we're talking about applied linguists, essentially. That's the, the dominant um, uh, disciplinary category that we're talking about. But when we talk about uh, issues related to socioeconomic status, we're talking about more general educational uh, people, like people as wonderful people have been working in this area. Dave uh, uh, Berliner, Linda Darlingham, and a lot of other people, but they're not they're not uh, primarily focused on language issues. So when they talk about challenging uh, social disadvantage, they're drawing on a whole different set of, of literature, and they're not necessarily uh, talking about issues related to. Um, uh, discrimination uh, or uh, what we need to do to support students' language development. And then the third category, uh, in terms of looking at uh, how to push back against racism in schools, uh, we're looking at people who are coming primarily from a sociological uh, background and who are talking about culturally responsive, culturally um, uh, relevant or culturally sustaining pedagogies. But again, often language is sort of uh, in the background of that. So what we need to do is to bring those three disciplinary perspectives, broad disciplinary perspectives together and look at, okay, what, what do we need to do in schools to bring uh, a, a focus on uh, creating context of empowerment for students, drawing from all the insights of all three of these disciplinary perspectives. And the, the book, is um, tries to be very interdisciplinary. Um, in the preface to the book, uh, I make the point that um, a lot of what's written about uh, in terms of educational research is um, quite distant from what's happening in schools uh, very often. Um, and I say that's fine. You know, it's it's great. For example, to to look at um, issues related to neurological processing of language and stuff like that. You know, I've got no problems with that. But my interest in this book starts and ends with what's happening between teachers and students in, in classrooms. Um, and so, uh, and whatever disciplinary perspective can provide insights into that, um, I'll try to incorporate and, and, uh, and use. And so there's no isms um, associated with this. You've got yeah, people who proclaim, okay, I'm coming from a postmodern perspective or postmodern or post-structuralist analysis of this or that, that's fine. Um, you know, good for you in, in terms of, of doing that, but it's not necessarily, it, it's, it's too distant often from what's happening in classrooms to be really useful for the development of school-based language policies. And so the, the analysis and theoretical concepts that I'm trying to do uh, in the book or trying to present in the book uh, essentially uh, focuses on theoretical concepts 
that are directly related to what's happening between teachers and students in multilingual school contexts. I think the three disciplinary perspectives are like bricks. And then your framework is like the mortar that brings and ties all the bricks together. It really, really helps. Let's end with this final question. This is uh, the, I asked this question only the, to the most prolific uh, scholars that I have, but I consider you one of the most prolific ones. This, is, this comes from uh, Oprah Winfrey. And she has a column called, uh, This I Know For Sure. Out of your 40 years of research, and I'm so grateful that you have continued to research and share what you do, because it definitely impacts my instruction. What do you know for sure now from 40 years of research with working with multilingual teachers, multilingual students, and their families? Um, what comes to mind is that um, we know for sure that multilingualism is a cognitive acid, um, it's a social acid, it's essential for the development of communication within the family, and it's close to an educational crime uh, not to promote students' multilingualism in schools. Um, and so that may seem like strong language, but it, and I'm not talking about individuals committing this crime, I'm talking about the structure. So when we look at teacher education programs that say nothing. And for years and years, they've said nothing about language development or multilingualism. And in contexts like Toronto, Vancouver, New York, San Francisco, Berlin, Hamburg, where a majority of students are coming from multilingual backgrounds, uh, to leave that out of teacher education programs uh, or provide only minimal um, uh, focus on it uh, is essentially, a, a, an example of institutionalized racism. And so when we look at, at, at those issues, we need to forefront them within schools. When we look at school leaders, school principals, vice principals, who are appointed in cities and school districts that are highly multilingual, and these school leaders have no experience, no background uh, in relating to the research on multilingualism, bilingualism, um, academic language development, um, that is a crime of institutionalized racism. Um, and so that's not a, a, a critique of the principles themselves. It's a critique of the, I guess, the, the power relations, what I call coercive power relations that are built into the structures of education and other institutions in our society. And we can do something about it. Like the, a major point that I try to make in the book is that teachers are never powerless. Uh, even though we're in a situation where there may be all kinds of um, problematic assumptions being made in the wider society, at the level of the school, we can do a huge amount to challenge the, the, that pattern of institutionalized racism in the broader society. And I think that's a powerful message. And the last chapter in the book is quite a lengthy chapter because it's got, uh, it, it tries to review a lot of inspirational um, uh, uh, work that's been done in schools around the world, schools in Ireland, uh, schools in Sweden, schools in, in Canada, schools in the United States and many other countries uh, that where teachers 
have been the knowledge generators. Teachers have come up with uh, incredibly creative ways of um, pushing back on the assumption that students' multilingualism is a problem to be resolved uh, rather than part of the solution. And that chap, Lily Wan Fillmore, who wrote the um, uh, forward to the book, uh, which um, I'm eternally uh, grateful to her for. It's a, it's a really uh, insightful um, piece of work. But one of the things that she says is, hey, you know, you may want to start at the, the good part. And, and the good part is the last chapter. Uh, and then go from there to the, uh, to the rest. Uh, because that chapter uh, focuses on what teachers can do. And it highlights the fact that teachers have an incredible amount of power. Um, and teachers often work in contexts where policies constrain and limit that power, uh, but we need to push back uh, on those policies. And we can do it in many, in many contexts. Uh, we have enough flexibility and degrees of freedom within our schools where we can push back on the negative effects of uh, evidence-free and essentially discriminatory theoretical assumptions that have been made by policymakers and others. Well, this is what I know for sure. Every time I write a lesson plan, or every time I stand in front of a class, or every time I sit beside a student, you are there with me because of your work for the last 40 years. So I am in forever grateful for your work and your advocacy. Dr. Kip Cummings, well, thank you. Thank you. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. If I was a college professor designing a course on ML instruction, this would be a mandatory reading. It would actually probably be the only book in the course. With this single book, he brings three significant perspectives in our field and connect them together into a cohesive framework that provides clear actions we as teachers can take. Dr. Cummings, where was this book when I started 15 years ago? In the next podcast, we'll have Dr. Cecilia Espinosa and Dr. Laura Asensi Moreno talk about their new book called Rooted in Strength, Using Translanguaging to Grow Multilingual Readers and Writers. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine.